March is off to a soaring start right now. It's the markets rally today, ending an up week and ending a three-week losing streak for the S&P 500. After a dismal February, it's great to see the bulls are back running again on Wall Street. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I'm your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host from sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona, Tobin. Oh, I know. Idiot. You can say it's cold all you want. I know it's warm out there. It's cold in New York. I think it's too cold in New York. It's, it's always cold in New York. Go ahead. There you go. All right, and, and we have a we have a guest on the on the show. It's clear that buy hold sell has actually raised the level of gravitas. Finally, we have reached that that spot that we've been dying to get to for the past year. We have an excellent guest, Gina Martin Adams, chief equity strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, is joining the show. Gina, welcome to buy hold sell. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. He, he, he's had a little coffee today, Gina, and he's now changed the name of the show to Buy, Hold, and Fluff. So that's awesome. <laughs> it's he's all about the marketing. Up. That's okay. It's been a while since we had a nice full run here. Yeah, it's, right. It's a good there you go. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So you had a January. We had the January barometer, the trifecta hits. It's pointing to all, 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 uh, all signals are pointing north, thinking that this is going to be a wonderful year for the markets in 20. 2023. And yet February was an off month. But what do you think right now? I mean, is the leadership really there in the on the equity side that can really push this market even higher? You know, I think it is going to be a little bit of a year of rotation. So I don't want to dampen the party mood too much. I do think that January was a very strong start and a continuation of a new uptrend that began in October. So let's let's set that out there to start with. We did see a major sentiment washout as of October. Sentiment washouts usually make bottom in the equity market. And January for us was a continuation of a better trading environment emerging for 2023, at least relative to 2022. That said, we got a bit ahead of ourselves. By the end of January, we were trading very overbought conditions. We were starting to lose a bit of momentum. Clearly, the junky nature of the January rally created a little bit of concern in the market, and we naturally removed some of that optimism in February. Now, as of March, our signals are suggesting we're net neutral. The equity market has bounced off of a 200-day moving average, which is a very critical level yeah. for the S&P 500. But notably, small caps are still leading, and that is a very key sign to watch. If small caps are continuing to lead, small caps are not making lower lows, continuing to lead the progress in the broader equity market, it's a signal to watch. That's been confirmed by other cyclicals continuing to lead in the equity market, financials, industrials, consumer discretionary stocks, the stocks that nobody talks about because we've been so captivated by tech and energy are still mm -hmm. starting to break out and break higher. Those suggest to us that the market is rotating into some form of a cyclical recovery trade. Are we going to get double digit growth? It seems incredibly unlikely considering the environment of still persistent inflation and higher interest rates, but we could have a reasonable year in 2023 relative to 2022. Wow. That's, uh, go ahead, Toby. Uh, I'll, go ahead. I'll take the other side of that trade. Um, okay. I mean, I, first of all, Gina, I think it's it's great to have you. And I, I think it's interesting that in the technical uh, analysis that we do and the people that I follow, I kept getting all these texts. I, I, man, I manage everything by text and I and I, and I I sort of find the vibe by text. And it was mm -hmm. on the second and everybody said, boom, we hit the bottom. We hit the 10 month moving average, which is, uh, you know, typically in recessions, that's one of the key indicators, obviously the 200 day, et cetera. Um, we didn't have Rosenberg on, but I, when I talked to him uh, on Monday, his whole thing is, yeah, but if you take the five largest market cap tech stocks out of the S&P 500, we're still below it. I said, well, that's sort of cherry picking, Rosie, mm -hmm. you know, but 
but it, it is intriguing. And then what I didn't mention was what you just mentioned. Yeah, but if you look at the small cap, you know, one would think that a that means the dollar's coming down somewhat, right? Because um, you know, from an import standpoint, they were getting hurt a little bit. The big issue that I think we keep missing, I think the market is missing. The Dallas Fed on Monday came out, and one of their great no, no, excuse me, Minneapolis Fed. One of the crazy uh, little things they do because they got 110 PhD uh, economists, so they got to do something. Was that they would they looked at the they they looked at the facts. Get it out. Yeah, I know. When, when they do the math, like I do the math, uh, A plus in calculus, uh, D minus in algebra, um, <laughs> that it's not possible with the sticky inflation and base effects to get to 2% inflation without a recession. They put it at the last part of their report, came out on Monday. Nobody's talked about it because nobody reads that stuff, but I read it. And mm -hmm. I thought it was intriguing, though, to, to hear the, some a, a Fed official look you basically in the eye and say, by the way, what we can't say is we have to create a recession because there's no way we can have two jobs for every, you know, one person available. Um, there's no way that, you know, rent and shelter costs, which lag everything by six to nine months. Can, can, there's just no way we can get there. And on the other hand, the Fed can't say, oh, by the way, did we say 2% inflation? No, 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 no. We meant 3% because then the whole bond market goes to hell. So- Right. Take on that. No, I, I think it's a very good point. And a couple of things come to mind immediately. First is you're absolutely right that as long as inflation remains hotter than the Fed would like to see, we have this ongoing pressure on interest rates. The market, at least the bond market, does seem to be pretty confident in this notion that the Fed is actually going to reverse policy later this year as the economy weakens over the course of 2023. And that is still a risk the equity market. But at the same time, I think you do need to very carefully decompose the equity market when you're talking about it, right? The S&P 500 trades at 18 times earnings. But if you remove the biggest stocks, you remove tech stocks, you're looking at an equal weighted index that's trading at 15 times earnings, right. which implies that you should be about what you'd pay for if CPI was around four. So outside of big cap tech stocks, which are obviously distorting the valuation view for the S&P 500, you do see the market trading at a more rational level of expectations mm -hmm. for inflation. I do, though, want to moderate my expectations for 2023 because I do think that valuations are going to remain somewhat capped by this idea that interest rates are going higher. Now, separately, you look at the earnings situation, it's very clear to us in our models, and as was as of October, that the equity market at that point in time was already trading on the idea that we were falling into recession in 2020. Right. And this is something that I think that nobody in the consensus really wants to point to. Everyone says, well, the market's not priced for recession, forgetting that the equity market prices in recession once and then starts to move on and price the prospects for recovery. And I do think that what happened is we priced this recession. We've been talking about this recession in March right. for another, a full year. Right. So that was a lot of what the risk of 2022 was. Yeah. And small caps in particular, as I highlighted earlier, are trading at two standard deviations below large caps have been in a bear market for nearly two years already. Small caps are very well prepared for this so-called recession that's emerging in 2023. And I think that's what you're seeing play out in the equity market. Well, that was interesting. The problem we have going forward is how much of a recovery can we get going into 2024 and 2025? And that's where I think we want to moderate our return expectations. Our models would say, unlike the last cycle where you got 11% annualized returns to the equity market, you probably get closer to 6% annualized returns this time around. Well, wow. That means that you have more of a choppy kind of market yeah. emerge. And that largely reflects those structural conditions that you spoke to, where the Fed 
is really struggling to get inflation back to that 2% bogey. We may be in an environment for a long period of time where we see inflation well above 3 or even 4%. What that means for interest rates is going to create complications for the equity market without a doubt. Yeah. But it creates complications for some stocks in the equity market more than other stocks. It means a choppy large cap market outlook, but it might mean a very positive small cap market outlook. Yeah. Hey, Gina, how do you uh, how do you then handicap the China reopen? Because in essence, yeah. um, now that becomes the hinge for oil. Yeah. That becomes the hinge for you know we're big into uh, energy tankers. We we called it the Brexit trade last year, and and you know God, when you make two hundred fifty percent from a 35 million market cap to a 200 million, you feel pretty smart, right? Well, now we're at yep. that point where we've been selling them um, yep. just simply to take the protective profits. But that China reopen is really the thing that would drive steel, would drive oil, would drive, yep. you know, drive LPG, chemicals, et cetera. What's your take? Yeah, I actually completely agree. There are plays. Can we on have her China on again, reopen. Todd? I've never had anybody completely agree. <laughs> I do I think. I think, though, that the evidence is pretty clear already in the equity market, or, or sorry, in the commodities market. And yeah. we published on this actually today, talking about the signals of the commodities market that are meaningful for the equity market. A couple really come to mind. The first is copper relative to gold yeah. has been rallying since October. Copper relative to gold is a very good risk tolerance sign. It suggests that if risk tolerance is improving, probably demand conditions for those metals mm -hmm. are starting to improve. Copper as the ultimate Dr. Copper economic indicator is telling us something at this moment in time, and it probably is tying to the China story. Now, obviously, only about 5% of overall revenues on the S&P 500 actually come from China. So the S&P 500 is not your best China play. Your best right. China play is really international China. equities, in particular emerging equities related to China, maybe even Australian equities, maybe some Canadian equities, given that they're resource kind of economies. But nonetheless, it is an over, overall signal of better performance likely coming. Um, I do think that it could complicate the inflation scenario. And this is something we watch for to play out in valuations for sure. Oil prices so far are also relatively contained, though, even though the China reopen story has perhaps put a floor under oil prices. Oil we prices sold, are still we down sold 85 million barrels of oil, you know, for no reason other than political, you know, gain, right? So yeah, yeah so fresh oil prices, right? I think if we, though, the, the positive news of that, frankly, is if oil prices are contained, they're down 40% from their peak. Yeah. Oil prices always peak in the middle of recession. And this is a very consistent factor mm. that goes back decades. If you look at 1991, wow. you look at 2009, 2008, 2009, even look at 2020, that oil price peak in the middle of 2022 may be telling you something. Oil prices down 40% are actually a potential reinvigorator of the cycle that nobody's paying attention to right now. Todd, so I think you want to watch that word really carefully. Reinvigorator, by the way, I'd like to write <laughs> that. Is that Gina's given us some amazing hot takes. And yes, re reinvigorating will be uh, the, the key word. Hashtag, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll start a movement with that. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but, I, mean, I think it's Gina. worth noting because yeah. Yeah. every recession yeah. we've had has included some distress in the consumer space related to the price of gas at the pump. If that distress is removed as a result of oil prices coming lower, Today, the consumer has a little bit of breathing room going into the spring and summer months relative to where they were in 2022. And nobody's talking about this factor. That said, this is the risk, right? If China does come back online and comes on hard and fast, 
the result is we could see oil prices reaccelerate into the summer months. And I would view that as actually a risk to the overall equity yeah. market because it may put us back into a much greater degree of distress economically. Well, also, let's not you know discount the fact that they had their PMI was 5.7, the large, highest gain in a, in a purchasing yeah. manager index ever. So that means they're doing that. Uh, Australia now can ship their coal to China because China finally said, Oh, we're so sorry. We 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 outlawed your 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 coal for two years, and uh, now we're running out of it. Well, they only run out of coal. Uh, I don't know how many times you've been to China, but I've been there a lot. You just go by the uh, the air quality in Beijing, and uh, I have a colleague over there, and I always text them every other month and say, I mean, how many lungs have you gone through so far? And and it's he said, dude, this is the cleanest air I've ever seen. And then last couple of weeks ago, he said, we're back to the crappy, you know, killing fogs, you know, quote unquote, which is smog. So I, I'm just intrigued that, that uh, I mean, I, I, the China bit, we're going to get more information, but what about the jobs? I mean, is well, this next job thing not the biggest one we have? Actually, let me stop to... you right there. Yeah. Let me stop you right there because that's a great, great uh, segue. We'll, we'll do that in the next next block because I do want to get your thoughts on that, Gina, especially after the eye-popping number we just had. We got the big jobs report coming out next week. Jerome Powell's going to have his uh, grill on the hill. He has to head to Capitol Hill next week. There's a lot of lot of moving things that are taking place that can move the needle next week. But listen, please stick with us. We have Gina Martin Adams, Chief Equity Strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence joining the show. We will be right back after the break. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube. Travis Carmichael, the seemingly social financier who successfully left behind a blue-collar Baltimore upbringing by transforming himself into an elite hedge fund manager branded with a sterling reputation for creating enviable profit machines for many of the world's most powerful people. His success proved costly as he became incessantly vulnerable after a series of careless mistakes and poor decisions originated from his love affair with the brilliant and stunningly beautiful Russian operative Naomi Knight. Through a roller coaster journey, of greed, mystery, sex, and murder, Travis and Naomi's metamorphosis from scorching Wall Street couple to unrecoverable bliss is forever locked for posterity as one of New York City's most interesting tales. Coming to you from former Wall Street hedge fund executive and frequent contributor on CNBC, Fox News, Bloomberg, and CNN, I, Todd Schoenberger, feature a historical novel inspired by true events, including but not limited to those who possess impenetrable dreams of Manhattan wealth and the consuming lifestyle it perpetuates. Please pick up your copy of No Lie Lives Forever, available on Amazon and finer bookstores near you. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, 
which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. Market sword today, Friday, March 3rd, 2023. We had the S&P 500 having its first positive week in the last four, rising 1.9%. Sensational because we saw so many uh, dire uh, uh, moments in February. January was a big month, but we have the best of the best with us right now on Buy, Hold, Sell. We have Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence. And Gina, right when we ended the last break, Toby brought up, about the, the upcoming jobs report. It will be next. So on Friday, March 10th, normally it would be uh, on the, uh, the first Friday, but uh, I think because of the jobless claims, you know better than we do, but I think there was some type of a, um, of a hiccup because it was so close to the end of the month. But here yeah. we're going to have this on the 10th. The consensus on Wall Street right now is looking at 225,000 jobs created in the month of February, which I still think is astonishing considering that we're supposed to be in this recessionary environment. But this would be on the heels of last month's 500 or January's 517,000 uh, number. So what do you think? I mean, being the strategist, I'm sure you're getting a number of people that are asking you how the jobs market is going to move the needle, because I would think if we do hit 225, that's still going to be a signal that the Fed might have to hike higher than the 25 basis point that's expected. Well, I think what's happening in the job market is really intriguing. So I'm glad you brought it up because it is on everyone's minds. I mean, I think that the most important data point that I can share with you today is really with respect to the degree of layoffs that were announced over the course of the fourth quarter earnings season. We did track uh, more than 100,000 layoffs announced by S&P 500 companies. Uh, just in that earnings season alone. And that's only S&P 500 companies, so certainly not for the, the population at large. We are likely to see initial jobless claims start to hook a little bit higher over the course of the next six months, and we will most likely see the unemployment rate rise a touch as well. That said, the job market has been surprisingly resilient and may continue to be surprisingly resilient because of the unique dynamics of this recession recovery experience. The thing I think you want to watch for, frankly, the thing that really matters most is what's happening with wages, because there is some degree of uncertainty with respect to a potential wage price spiral developing. And I think that that's what the Fed is focused on more than anything. Remember, we just came off of a month as well, where we repriced Fed funds expectations because of the inflation numbers. So a lot of this is where have you been versus what's priced in the market coming into January. The, the number took everybody by surprise. Without a doubt, we reset our expectations for employment growth to be a little bit more positive. We then reset our expectations for inflation to remain, remain hotter. So I would actually be on guard for What's going to happen with wage price, wage growth? Because if wage growth is somewhat disappointing, the market could actually respond relatively positively to the employment numbers. A 200,000 handle is still very steady. I totally agree with you. Relative to 500,000, it may not sound so splashy. 500,000, I think, is unsustainable. But if we keep getting 200,000 and we keep seeing wage growth, it will pressure 
the inflation expectations. It will pressure the bond market to reconsider you know, where it thinks the ultimate terminal rate may be. And it probably will infuse a degree of volatility in the equity market. But I can't stress enough, I think it's about wages. Uh, the job numbers themselves get revised a lot over time anyway. The Fed is going to watch wages and they're going to watch the inflation numbers more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's also, you know, add to that, that A, I think people sort of forget that we're like a 73 to 76% service economy. And those service jobs are the ones that are driving it. I don't think the Fed's worried about, you know, guys on the manufacturing line since it's such a small number. And that was where, you know, the wage spiral was in the 70s. Because, you know, in the early 80s is that they had cost of living adjustment, COLA deals in their union deals. So every time the price went up, their wages went up, and their wage went up, inflation went up, and that became the spiral. I'll still go back to the fact that three things. Number one, of the 155,000, according to information.com, of people who've been laid off by tech in Silicon Valley, um, you know, uh, uh, and around the world, almost all those people got three month to six month packages plus their stock vesting plus, plus, plus. So they're not going to show up in the unemployment because nobody's claiming unemployment when you've got a, you know, a severance package. So I, I pull those out. Then the second part of it is healthcare was another the big I- issue there. Um, remember that, you know, uh, uh, Social Security and Medicare Advantage and so on and so forth, they had the largest uptake in Medicare Advantage we've ever seen in the last 24 months. And that means that more people are covered. And that means people can go wherever the hell they want for service. And we lost 200,000 people in the healthcare business. Uh, so and then the third one, of course, would just be that everybody with hair my color uh, has, I, has quit. I'm the only guy I know, you know, from college <laughs> who's, who's still freaking working. Uh, you know, uh, the loss of five, you know, first of 1.5 million Zoomers, 21 to, to 32, they're gone. What are they sitting playing, you know, e-games all the time? Then the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the other side is the over 60 uh, numbers is down about two and a half million. So, you know, when I sort of lose, I'm, oh, by the way, we're down one and a half million immigrants. So, mm-hmm. you know, unless the Fed could, you know, like 3D print people, I, I don't, I don't see this dynamic changing. And the only yeah. way you get people off their ass, particularly out of the basement playing, you know, you know, a Game of Thrones, or I don't know, is to pay them more. And then uh, once you pay them more, it takes you time to train them. So their productivity is low, blah, blah, blah. The Fed is not going to see any number that's going to scale them other than if, if we get to the 250, 300,000 jobs again, which we, we certainly could, because that also is skewed in the first part of the year, um, then they, they have nowhere to go. It's it's the old thing. Good news used to be good news. Bad news used to be bad news. Yeah. Then we had bad news was good news. And I, I that's why, you know, I used to have dark hair when we started this show. Because, uh, <laughs> I, you know, you have to, the narrative, right? is driven by the algos. It's not driven by anything else. If the algorithm says, you know, good economic news means the Fed's going to keep raising, sell, 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 right? Uh, And then sometimes you get bad news, and that's good news because that says the Fed's going to stop. And it it, it flips back. It's like a ping pong game. Um, And that's why we're range bound, number one. But then number two, I will say this. And again, going back to the example of tankers, we have some secular changes that have happened in our economy, in the world economy. The global D globalization is on like Donkey Kong here. And that's that's not slowing down. Um, and, you know, we're buying these tankers at three PEs generating 25% annual dividends. I just was with a client today. We put three and a half million dollars to work in, in the average PEs of four 
with dividends yeah. averaging 22%. And I'm telling you, just hang on till June when the Fed's done, and then we're going to yeah. buy mortgage REITs and everything else that does better when interest rates ultimately come down. If you're tactical right now, we're crushing it. But if you're yeah. just buying the index to Gina's point, hey, man, you know, you have no edge on anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, Gina, how about that? Because right now, when you start, you were talking about the health of the consumer when you were really getting into your, your analysis there with the jobs report. And we just had the big retailers release uh, their earnings. Actually, this week we had Walmart last week. It's clear up. that, yeah, it's clear. It's definitely some weakness. I mean, I know Target beat their uh, their their analyst report, but when you start looking at the that health of the consumer, and then you talk about the wages, I got to tell you, I mean, we had Nicole Middendorf one the other day. I mean, she was telling us. I mean, people are still out there shopping. They're just not holding any shopping bags. So eventually, no, they have shopping bags. The shopping bags are empty. You bonehead. Yeah, uh, shopping bags are. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so with that, though, going forward, I have to suspect that if people aren't spending, that is going to have where are the earnings. The earnings will not be there on the equity side. Am I correct, or what, what's your thought well, for the I retail space? But it's it's it trickles down to all yeah. of them. I mean, you can take a look at any sector. If people aren't working, people aren't driving, therefore you're going to have yeah. oil stocks should be plummeting. Yeah. Well, without a doubt, we are experiencing some degree of slowdown. I mean, we did have re even revenues expectations were reduced by analysts across the S&P 500 for the next three quarters. So we are yeah. starting to see some degree of volume slowdown. The, but I think a lot of the volume slowdown is driven by mixed shift when it comes to the consumers. Certainly they're not going out to retail and spending on goods, but they are still spending on services. I, mean, I don't know how many airplanes you guys have been on for the last couple of months, but everyone yeah. I'm on is packed. Yeah. Also, businesses are still spending a lot on services as well. So restaurant reservations, still very hard to get. Uh, travel services, still definitely hopping. So we are seeing more of a mixed shift with a bit of slowdown, certainly at retail and absolutely a slowdown in durable goods order spending, goods orders growth and durable spending, as you would expect. Interest rates are going higher. Anything that's somewhat dependent upon interest rates is going to get a hit. So housing activity flowing a little bit, autos activity flowing a little bit, anything that requires a credit card to purchase or financing to purchase is going to get hit hardest in an environment where interest rates are going higher. We should expect that. The thing to really watch, frankly, is the services spending. How much do they slow down their spending on, you know, vacations going into the summer? How much do they, you know, does traffic slow down? Are airlines starting to struggle again? Are restaurants experiencing a lot of um, open tables, et cetera, et cetera? Because those are the areas of strength right now. If those start to weaken, then we do have to worry a little bit more about the outlook. We just aren't seeing that weakening and mass. I think it is a very mixed story. I mean, frankly, when we look across the S&P 500, it's really astonishing to see the divergence in trends where you know, financials are actually starting to pick up some speed, industrials as well, materials doing reasonably well, energy obviously had a fantastic 2022. It's coming off of that. But generally, these profits of these companies are still holding in quite consistently higher. Uh, the areas of weakness are the areas that used to be strength. So tech, we spent so much money on tech in the pandemic. That's all we cared about. We were all completely captive. And so the concentration of spending was in that space. And now that's experiencing the downdraft. This goes back to something we were talking about. The unique aspects of this pandemic yeah. and pandemic recovery are really playing out across the S&P 500. Uh, and it is very much an idiosyncratic story in a lot of ways. I mean, there are some very strong winners in the index, and there are also 
also some very big losers that played out throughout 2022. I don't think that's going to change in 2023. Well, also, I you know, let's you know, let's be clear. This post-pandemic weirdness, I think, is what David at the J.P. Morgan called, which I which I sent him a note. I said, "You stole my line, you jag." But <laughs> uh, the weirdness is now sort of not weird. I, I would just call this. I have a, a portfolio, the index that I run. It's, it's called the GMOOF, which is basically get me the freak out of here because of a travel. And it's at the higher end. I own America Express. Why? Because every every $8,000 uh, Seaborne cruise that every one of my friends other than me has been on in the last two months, they're spending eight to 10, 15 grand to go down to the Galapagos, et cetera. Why? Get me the freak out of my area. Get me out of my house. Get yeah. me out of you know this, this thing. And I have the financial wherewithal to do it. So at the high end, I, I totally get that. On, on the other side of it, the, the trading down uh, of, of premium to, you know, buying more food at Walmart than buying clothes, et cetera. And again, perfectly makes sense. We had to build another closet just for the clothes we bought in the freaking pandemic, right? We, or, you know, for all the other stuff, you know, you added. But um, on a continuing base, I guess we try to use, you know, a base effect in a year over a year uh, uh, deal. The restaurants are still kicking butt. If you look at those stocks, you know, uh, Gina, from following them, uh, Wingstop's my favorite. Wingstop is both value and sloth at the same time, which to me is basically the story of America. And, uh, you know, Todd has his kids and the 1,200 lacrosse players coming over to his house. What are you going to do? Hello, Wingstop. All right, send send me 12 right. bucks, uh, and they're going to eat them all, right? But yeah. Wingstop also has a new chicken sandwich. I'm getting very, you know, binary here. And the new chicken sandwich is great. Well, based on that scientific analysis, we purchased Wingstop a couple of months ago. Stock's up 40%. It was selling at about a four PE if you took forward, you know, ratings on it, and it's the value buy for ten yeah. bucks. You could feed both of your kids, and your kids eat like they're going to the electric chair. <laughs> well, Listen, okay. To, to add on to that, just think about the dynamics of now. Southeast Asia and China is just getting started yeah. in their recovery yeah. process, right? And so you think about how Americans and Europeans really started to get out and spend on services over the course of the last year. We're just entering that wave for much of Southeast Asia, which has been largely locked down, in particular China, but not just China. A lot of peripheral economies in Southeast Asia were very, very slow to sort of come back online, maintain yep. some degree of extreme conservatism with respect to moving around. And now that spending power has also been unlocked. So I think when you think globally, we can't think of a sort of synchronized recovery anymore. We have to think of the sequential waves of recovery and well, like Southeast Asia is just experiencing them. Yeah, I mean, we, so, we're, go ahead, go ahead. I say we're also well, well, Starbucks, by the way, because Starbucks opened yeah. up of yeah. 4,500 stores in China that were closed. Yeah. I mean, I might, have, I might be a wise man, but they got to have more sales uh, this year than last year. Right. Well, Gina, question for you. So domestically, I mean, well, first of all, at Bloomberg, you have access to the all-star team of analysts. I mean, you got Mike McKee right there. I mean, I'm a big fan of. So what is everybody saying internally at Bloomberg? I mean, there's got to be pockets geographically around the country that are much softer, much weaker than other parts. I mean, you talked about restaurants being packed. Now, I know you travel a lot, but I would imagine New York City, you know, you're, you're walking on Lexington Avenue. It's not exactly 
the I don't think there's a mirror image of Lexington Avenue to what the parts of the Midwest, for example. There's got to be a slowdown. You, you, uh, I, I, University of Florida. I mean, is Southeast. I mean, is a Southeast booming? Because I would think that it is. Yeah. We hear things, but we don't know. What do you think, or what? What are what's everybody talking about at Bloomberg that's saying, yeah, these areas of the country are weaker than others? The only area of the country that I've heard people talk about as being weak is actually San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is very reflective of what's been going on in tech and also reflective of the fact that San Francisco really never got back to life following the pandemic because there was no real return to work. There was no real return to office in downtown San Francisco. So what I do hear is in that Bay Area, some significant weakness definitely has emerged. I have not heard of other areas of the country, frankly, as emerging weaker. I was just down in Texas earlier this week. I was in Austin and San Antonio. Things are definitely booming there. I was in San Diego and Southern California two weeks ago. Things were definitely booming there. Chicago has been in fits and starts in similar fashion to New York, definitely struggling with the hybrid kind of workplace in Chicago downtown has been, um, you know, kind of in this rolling recovery. I would call that similar to Manhattan's rolling recovery, but I have not heard about weakness or weakness as the characteristic term. The only area that I've honestly heard has weakened substantially and is, is definitely still struggling to come back from the pandemic is that San Francisco Bay Area. No question. Hey, Jamie, question, question. So we talk a lot about equities here. Let's talk a little bonds. Oh, no. Do we let's have to? Talk, let's talk a little bonds. I mean... Um, that's a that's a 180 to equity. Yeah, you know, I am the equity strategist. So bonds... I know, I know, but as an equity strategist, you have to have a position on where, where rates are going to be and where the bond... Yeah. Because at some point in time, we're, we're calling it like the great, you know, mambo shift. When the Fed uh, ends, and we think it's in, and by the way, the terminal rate I'm using is 5.75 to 6% for a variety of reasons. But man, there's going to be some wonderful bargains in, 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 uh, as interest rates start to come down in those interest rate uh, businesses, mortgage REITs, uh, mortgage lenders. You know, I mean, uh, here in Scottsdale, greater Arizona, uh, there's a restaurant where all the, the ex-mortgage brokers hang out and it's, it holds about 800 people, about 700 of the people are those mortgage brokers, right? Um, yeah. Real estate people, so on and so forth. If rates start to come down, what what do I want to buy when, it, when, I, when interest rates have finally peaked is what I'm asking. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. The most interest rate sensitive segments of the market tend to be the financials, consumer discretionary and industrial sectors where rates are pretty consequential to the outlook for earnings growth. Mm -hmm. So when I'm thinking about the equity market and sensitivity to interest rates, what's really interesting about the equity market, recall when we first started talking, I was talking about some rotation into these very sectors already. So the equity market is already starting to think about the point in time when interest rates have finally peaked, which is not totally unusual. The equity market can move up to 12 months in advance of the overall economy. It's obviously had a lot of time to adjust to the idea of higher rates, but these are the areas that are definitely the most interest rate sensitive uh, in the equity market. I think small caps could also get a tremendous lift off of that. Uh, There is this general, it's more of a sentiment headwind than a Uh real headwind, but small caps from a sentiment perspective are very tied to interest rates because there's a perception of the cost of funds being incredibly important to small caps. You and I know that energy is a big part of that story and energy certainly has no scarcity of funding at this moment in time 
they've been cash flow hoarders of this giant cash hoard that they've developed over the course of the last year. Well, that's hard to say. Risk you got to get a, that D really hard because yeah. other it sounds like that they're 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 cash whores. You know that. I mean, you really got to hit that consonant. Um, hey, so look at if it, we just bought, we we're starting to build a position in a firm which was only a two hundred and twenty-five dollar stock. You know, eighteen months ago, now it's eighteen because of exactly what you said that on a firm you can, uh, you know, they 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 charge your interest rate to the seller. You mm -hmm. divide your payment into four payments or six payments. Uh, and I, I get a, a, a note from a, a credit agency that follows all this stuff. And both PayPal now has the same thing and a firm. And they said on Amazon, which is, you know, sort of the big uh, kahuna here, they said they've seen the, the transactions up about 30% uh, over the last three to four months because people are discovering this, you know, buy now, pay later. Uh, yeah. And the young kids don't do credit cards any longer, right? So um, any, any thoughts on buy now, pay later? Have you ever followed that space at all? It's a little bit too um, narrow for me to follow. I'm sure there's a Bloomberg intelligence analyst that I could good. refer you to. Okay, good. <laughs> that said, I will say this, but when we run our, we run scorecards for the sectors, relative sector allocation, as well as industry allocation within sectors. And intriguingly, within the financial sector, consumer finance industries at large have popped to the top of our scorecards. So that is consistent with a theory that there will be a little bit more activity, a little bit more revenue growth for financing companies. Over the and the other question is for me is, or to you is leading indicators. So I, I'm a rosy oh, fan. Yeah. You know, Dave Rosenberg and I, you know, I'll go way back. And uh, when he was at Merrill for crying out, that's how old I am. And uh, uh, he's all jiggy on the leading indicators because the le leading indicators are showing that, you know, we're going this way, not this way. Do you follow the leading indicators? Is that a big part of your stuff? So I have a select list of leading indicators of my own that I like. The leading indicators index is the composite index. I presume that's what we're talking about yeah, here. I actually are. like the leading leading indicators of the market internal. So uh, back to my technicians brief. Yeah, I like to follow things like are what are semiconductor stocks doing? What are transportation stocks doing? What are home builder stocks doing as leading indicators for the equity market itself? Because frankly, the equity market is always going to be in front of the economy. Um, and so the leading economic indicators are only so useful in pockets. The leading indicators within the equity markets, the internals such as small caps, all of them are breaking higher. Yeah. And that probably tells you a little something about risk tolerance yeah. right now. It's in a state of improvement for sure, but they, it is rare, frankly, to find a point in time in this early in an economic potential recovery cycle where all three of those major industry groups, home builders, transports, and semiconductors are breaking out of downtrends. It's usually two of three. You know, you've always got one lagger that's making you wonder if the call is right. This yeah. time it's three of three, which does say a lot about how oversold and how much sentiment washout we had throughout 2022 in anticipation of the weak economic climate that we're having in 2023. Well, explain explain to the listeners, viewers, what oversold means and what, uh, you know, uh, yeah. like, because it's a big issue. Yeah. So uh, let me just start with this. We run our own proprietary survey of market internals, and we call it the Market Pulse Index. And what we've done with this thing is we've taken every indicator that we can find in the market and tested it for its value in determining ultimate sentiment highs and lows in the equity market. And as of October, the equity market pulse was basically at zero. We've, wow. you know, we take things like volatility in the equity market, correlations between stocks, the performance of high leverage versus low leverage stocks, the performance of defensive versus cyclical sectors. And it's a laundry list, but nonetheless, we put it all together. October's low was as low as the 2009 low, wow. just to give you a sense of how bad sentiment was 
in October. Do I need to spend fifteen hundred bucks a month to get my uh, Bloomberg terminal? And get that? <laughs> you 20, better get that Bloomberg 22. subscription so you can follow. Twenty two fifty. Twenty two fifty. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know that the other thing that I would say is it's just rare. It's very rare that you have a signal that is that clear that sentiment was that washed out. And yeah. I think that the results of the market rally since is is a function of that sentiment washout more than anything else. We had basically given up on the equity market at that point in time. It doesn't mean that the rally can't you know, end, end at oversold or overbought conditions, and we might go into a more choppy period, that certainly is possible. But that oversold signal was very, very important. Now, what I, when I think about oversold and overbought, I tend to think of those terms as more near-term uh, indications. And what we did see as of January, for instance, we got to a point of very overbought levels where 14-day RSI, which yeah, is RSI the momentum indicator in the, inde in the index, was a bit over overdone. Uh, MACD, which is a moving average crossover of convergence divergence lines, that crossed under. So there's some technicals that I use to describe overbought and oversold conditions. Mm -hmm. I think most of them are very short-term in nature, so I don't use them for a longer-term thought process, but the market signals index was really important to driving mm -hmm. our thought process well, as of the October What's level. interesting to me is, is that exactly what you described about the sentiment being just, you know, I, I try to explain to people just saying, everybody who had to sell has sold. Uh, yeah. And that that at some point in time, the people who don't sell for a variety of reasons, particularly the 78% of the market that's owned by pensions and so on and so forth, there's no nobody else to sell. You don't have to sell, you don't want to sell, blah, blah, blah. That to me is 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 this oversold. But the sentiment of the retail, you know, the FOMO, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. That's that's really on, at, at the margin, not the big deal. It's the big guns, right? It's the hedge funds, the pensions, et cetera, that are that are driving this. Yeah, story. which is why we use those market internals because yeah. the market internals tell you everything you need to know about sentiment. I mean, this is the one trouble with sentiment is everybody has their favorite indicator. So a lot yeah. of people, for instance, use flows. I've found flows to be quite meaningless as an indicator. Uh, the FOMO trade is exhibited best in meme stocks, and so we right. do follow the meme stock crowd. But meme stocks aren't indicative as a as a market indicator. Of them and themselves either. Yeah. They indicate themselves, right. but they don't indicate anything about the broader market. Yeah. So what we try to do is isolate the true sentiment drivers by analyzing the market internals and analyzing how stocks are behaving relative to one another and how stocks themselves are behaving rather different segments of the market are behaving. And, and I think that that's to me, it's a much better, much more quantifiable signal that I can use. And it actually has proven its worth for me once again with that October signal. Yeah. Todd, okay. JC Peretz, you know, he, he came in and he said, you know, JC, well, let me tell you, the actual law was in June of 2022. I'm perfect proof. I don't know why people yeah. listen to me. And then he said again in October, you know, he got the same, you know, reading. So we basically had the double bottom. But yeah. he claims that we have the technical yeah. bottom June 16th, I think it was. And you know what? If you go look at it, he was right. Now, if you overlay, yeah, he's not Gina, wrong. Yeah, and he's not wrong at all. Gina has the, from, that's when the small cap index. Small bottom. cap, right? Well, yep. when you he is not at all wrong. Yeah, and that's the other thing that I think is really difficult in our in our business is we tend to get very captivated by what's happening in the S and P five hundred. The S and P five hundred at times is very skewed by heavy market weight, market weight constant, market cap concentrations. Yeah, and over the last couple of years, it got even more skewed. So really, the S and P five hundred in a lot of ways only gives you a view of what's happening with its biggest stocks, especially at the peak in twenty twenty one. It was really just what's happening with Apple. 
yeah, and right, Microsoft yeah, right. and uh, yeah. Tesla and Amazon, because that was all that drove the index. That's changing because we're having some shifting market cap concentrations right now, but it still doesn't give you a view of what's really happening in the broad markets. That's why we do lean on small caps as well. So in this instance, I would not argue with JC. Mr. Teacher, yeah. I just learned there, a great lesson. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, there you go. I, we, all did, we all did. And the audience. And, and Toby, on, on a side note here, I just got an email from JC. He loved the impersonation. So that was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So listen, guys, we're going to leave it there. So a wonderful show. Gina Martin Adams, thank you so much for joining us today on Buy, Hold, Sell. Can't thank you enough. You definitely uh, raised the level of knowledge for our audience that's for sure so so listen thank you so on behalf of gina martin adams and tobin smith i am todd schoenberger thank you again for joining us today on buy hold sell we'll catch you next week take care I want you to smash that like button. (laughs) Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.